It is good to be back. Some of you know that uh, right after uh, the service uh, last Sunday, my uh, family uh, headed off to Walt Disney World, and we got back on uh, Friday. It was a surprise to our uh, to our two boys that can comprehend surprises. Uh, we had been telling uh, uh, our young or our middle son Joshua that if he would be potty trained, uh, we would take him to Chuck E. Cheese. And uh, he, had, he had been right on the cusp of being potty trained, and uh, we got in the car and we're heading to the airport. He didn't know that, and uh, we told him we had something special for him uh, last Sunday, and he was all excited. And uh, I told him, we're heading to Walt Disney World, and he frowned and got mad, and he says, I want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> you can never make a child happy. I said, hey, you're going for the small mouse, we're going for the big mouse. And, uh, uh, and uh, once he figured it out, uh, he got to the airport, he said, this isn't Chuck E. Cheese. I said, don't worry about it, it's coming. And when he saw Mickey Mouse for the first time, all was well. And I can say we have now uh, another boy in the Badal family that is potty trained. He woke up on Wednesday and just he headed into the bathroom in the hotel room. He said, what are you doing? I got to go potty. And I said, all right. So I don't know what character told him that he needed to start using the potty, but we're glad he did. That was a battle in the Badal family. So, uh, so with that, it's good to be gone, 80 degrees most of the week, and uh, it's terrible to be back. So we start a new series uh, this week. Uh, the series is entitled Hypocrite. As you, uh, if you've been around here, you know that uh, we are going to be taking a chapter of Romans uh, every year for the next 16 years. And uh, we are in uh, the C- uh, series number two of that 16 uh chapter book of Romans, and uh, we're going to be picking up uh, again in chapter 2. We looked at chapter 1. If you weren't here with us last year, you can pick up the series or go to the website. Uh, The series was entitled, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But this week, we start start, uh, the series called Hypocrite. I would ask that you would turn to Romans 2. If you don't know where Romans 2 is at, If you get into the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, you'll be looking for names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and then the book of Romans. Paul writes this letter to the uh, church, and he uh, gives us great words. It's been called the Magna Carta of the Bible, one of the uh, greatest uh, works of writing, both in secular and Christian writing of all time, the book of Romans. So we look at chapter 2 this morning, so I'd ask that you would stand. As we read, we're going to read through the entire chapter so we have an understanding of where we're heading over these upcoming weeks. And this is how Paul articulates Romans 2 to us. He says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. 
to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Now all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those Uh, who hear the law, who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences are also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because... You have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as those you have who as those you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those they as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father God, we come to the second chapter of this amazing book. And Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds through your Spirit. Lord, we're going to be dealing in the first half of this chapter, dealing with uh, those who look with great disdain on uh, those who have fallen to grievous sin. And we say to ourselves, well, I'm better than them. Lord, let us recognize this morning, as we begin this series, that if that is our view, then we are hypocrites. Because we've all sinned, Father. We've all sinned against you. We all deserve uh, the fiery uh, fires of hell uh, for eternity. But Lord, because of your great love for us, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you gave us life. And because of your mercy, we can now be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. So, Father, speak to us through this book. 
speak to us through this chapter in the weeks to come that we will be able to understand what it means to be a follower of you and how we should view those who are outside the family of God. Lord, let us do it in a way that brings glory and honor to you so that everyone who sees and watches us live our lives will be able to praise you and give glory to you in spite of all their disagreements about who you are and how you have called them to live. Let us be examples of your light in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Most of you know that when I was a child, and even growing up as a teenager, I found myself in a lot of trouble. If my mom and dad were here today, they would probably say of all the three boys that uh, they had in their family, I probably was the one that got the most spankings as a child. Now, I wasn't directly uh, rebellious. I just found myself um, getting into trouble, getting into mischief, and, and my dad would have to correct that. And uh, one of the problems was is I had a brother who was 13 months younger than me. Now, some of you know my brother Joel. He is a guy that uh, sticks to the book. He's the guy that uh, doesn't get into lots of trouble. In fact, I, I don't remember my brother getting into much trouble at school at all. I, I don't remember hearing him having to go to the principal's office or, or anything like that. And I was the direct opposite. And in many ways, my brother and I are opposites on, on many uh, parts of life. And usually what would happen is, is I would come home from school, whether with bad grades or a, uh, a note from the principal, and, uh, and my father, being from the Middle East and being a traditionalist, would come home and he would say, it's time for a spanking. And he would take me into my room and uh, he would uh, begin the discipline process. And I would always find that my younger brother was looking through the door with a grin on his face. My brother loved to see me get a spanking. He had some weird fetish about it. He would come and he would peer through the doorway and, and look. And I remember it used to make me so angry because there would be a smile on his face, approving every spank that I got. Well, it caught up to him once. Because one day he was peering through the doorway and he was smiling, and it was an extra good spanking that, that day. And my brother uttered the words, probably what he thought was under his breath, out loud. Give it to him, Dad. <laughs> and the spankings stopped for me. And with great joy in my heart, my dad turned around and he says, Oh, you think you're too good for a spanking? And I smiled. You know, Romans 2 is a lot like my brother. Romans 2 reminds us that even though maybe we are the good child, even though we are the good person, there are times when God speaks to us. You see, if you remember uh, the series The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Romans 1 starts out very good. Then it turns bad, and then it gets downright ugly. At the end of Romans 1, uh, God gives this uh, prosecution, uh, case for prosecution against the whole world of sinners who find themselves in all kinds of sin. This is what he says at the last uh, part of it. If you're in Romans 2, just look back a little bit to verse 28 of Romans 1. Furthermore, after he's talked about all these gross sins that they've been a part of, 
Furthermore, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what not ought be done. Now they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. He says they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know what's going on there? God is giving a spanking to the heathen world. And he's saying, you don't get it. But the problem is, we as Christians are like my brother, sitting on the other side of the doorway saying, give it to him, God. Yeah, hit him again and put some stank on it this time. Let's really, come on, they really deserve it. Give it to them. You can't be living that way. You can't be pursuing that kind of life and think you can get away with it. High five me, God. This is good. This is the kind of preaching I like, God. And we are Romans 1 kind of Christians. Let's preach about the homosexuals. Let's preach about the sexual uh, immoral. Let's preach about those people that are greedy and they're idolaters and they hate God. Those are easy messages to preach. And we sit there with great affirmation, with smiles on our faces, and we say, yeah, God, get them. And then God says, you think you're too good for a spanking? You think you're too good? You, a mere man who pass judgment, who do the same things, you think you're okay? You think you can get away with those things? Just like my brother, Romans 2 God turns around and he points at us. Now there's a lot of speculation by commentators on who the audience is in Romans 1 and who the audience is in Romans 2. There are some that say uh, that God is speaking to the Gentile world, the heathen Gentile world that has fallen to all kinds of sin in Romans 1. And then he moves to the Jewish people who had the law and who have lived righteous lives, and they are the ones in chapter 2. Now there are others who say it's for the Gentile, to the Gentile, for the Jew in 1, and to the Jew in in chapter 2. I would say that the best way to understand this passage is to understand that God is speaking of all humanity. And there is some identification of of the Jew in the end of chapter 2. But if we want to understand this text, what Paul is saying is is he's ramping up for a conclusion in chapter 3. In chapter 3, this is what he says. What shall we then conclude? Are we better Not at all, he says in verse 9. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. What is Paul saying? He may be classifying Jews and Gentiles for a way of dealing with his argument. But the whole argument funnels down to one thing. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you are under sin. Whether you've done the grievous, gross sins of Romans 1, or you've done the cleaner ones, and you find yourself in Romans 2, Romans chapter 3 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the audience is every one of us whether we find ourselves in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Now Paul says, you start living in Romans chapter 2, you're a hypocrite. 
And that's why we've named the series Hypocrite. We need to define this word. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite, the dictionary says, is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue and religion. Or one who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs. Now that's how the dictionaries define it. I want you to write down my definition. I wrote down this. A hypocrite is one who is indignant to another's sin and yet is indulgent in his. Write that down. A hypocrite is one who is indignant, who's angry, who's upset, who's furious with another's sin and yet is indulgent in his own. We love hearing Romans 1 preached. But if you're like me, you become squeamish when Romans 2 rolls around. We sit in the pew and what do we say? When Romans 1 is preached, boy, if Junior was only here to hear this message. I wish so-and-so from work came and heard this message. I need to make sure I get a CD to give it to so-and-so because they need to hear the message. But what is God telling us in Romans 2? Sit down, be quiet. You've got a message you need to listen to. Not anybody else. Don't worry about them. You worry about yourself. Well, in verses 1 through 4 this morning, we want to look at this idea of who are we to judge. And I want to look at three negative uh, commands, if you will, that are shared in the text. And the first one we see is that when we look at verses 1 through 4, our text tells us don't delight. Don't delight in inexcusably judging others. Look at what verse 1 says. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now I will tell you, Romans 2 is a hard uh, passage of Scripture to understand. Paul is going machine gun fire, if you will, through this. And he's repeating things and he's uh, adding emphasis to certain things. It's hard to read, even as you listen to me read it publicly. It's a difficult thing uh, to read and to process. So I'm going to try to make it real easy. Don't delight in judging others. Why? Because it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. Now, why is it inexcusable? Well, we first need to understand why, why would we delight in something that is something that is inexcusable? Why would we find uh, great joy? You know, we live in a culture that says it's, it's not only permissible to judge, but that we should do it and should enjoy it. We live in a consumer uh, world, in a consumer nation that says you are the critic, you're the spectator. You're the judge. In our American society, you are the one that has the power of definition. The rights of the individual trump anything uh, of the group as a whole. And so what, what takes place? Well, we have TV shows like American Idol. Two nights this last week, American Idol was number one in, in all TV ratings. And what is American Idol all about? It's about taking individuals and allowing them to perform in front of a group of judges. But those group of judges are representatives, if you will, of us, the audience, of millions of people who make their decision on whether that person should go on to the next level or not. 
And so people get on their text uh, uh, messaging phones and they text in, yeah, that person makes it. No, that person shouldn't. We watch shows uh, that kick people off of islands and, and the whole premise of the show is that we are to make a determination and the people even within the show are making a determination who should be kicked off and who should be left on. Even in the shows like The Biggest Loser and, and uh, model shows like Project Runway where there's a competition going on, we as the audience are set as the judge. Who do we like? Who don't we like? Who do we think makes the mark? Who do we think misses the mark? We are in a culture of judging. Now, it's not all bad. It's not all bad to do that, but we find ourselves delighting in it. We take uh, delight in not only judging and giving our two cents on, on people. I know I did that this last week. Um, and while Disney World, we were uh, waiting. Amanda had taken Noah on a, on a ride, and I was waiting with the two boys, and we were in a wait area. And uh, there was a family from the UK. You could tell by uh, their uh, accents. You could tell by what they were wearing. They were from the United Kingdom, and these people were rough-looking. You, you, you wondered, uh, you know, they just didn't fit the family, if you will, that you would find at Disney World. And I was blown away by the behavior of these people. I began to judge them. Now, in some ways, probably rightly so. Because a kid, one of their kids, a boy, he couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 years of age. Mom and dad pull out cigarettes and they start to smoke. And I watch this and the 10-year-old pulls out a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket and he starts to smoke. I'm sitting there going, well, that's no good. You shouldn't be doing that. And I'm not going to sit here and watch that. And then all kinds of terrible words, especially at Walt Disney World that you shouldn't hear, come out of all their kids' mouths. There's a whole tribe of them. And I come to the point that I'm about to leave, and they get up and they're heading out. And I kid you not, the whole group of people in that wait area start clapping. Thank you for leaving. We're glad you're gone. Why? Because we cast judgment on them. You know what people started to say? And i got to be honest with you, I was thinking the same way. What kind of parents are those people? Man, these people have lost their mind. Now, is that a bad judgment? I think you just got to be careful. I think that's what Paul is talking about. To make sure that we don't just think that just because we have this uh, ability to judge, every one of us, whether you're a man, woman, or child, you have the ability to judge, to be a, criti a critic. You do that when you go out to eat at a restaurant. Uh, the food was good. No, the food was bad. You go and do it at a movie. The movie was good. The movie was terrible. You do that when you're looking for a spouse. That person was, was really nice. That person needs to get a life. You do that even now. You're preaching, or as you're hearing my preaching, you're saying, wow, Tim woke up on the wrong side of the bed, or Tim really has it figured out this morning. You are in a process all the time of judging, of critiquing, of making an assessment about people. Now here's the problem when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to the issue of sin. We run into a problem, and Romans 2 nails it on the head in verse 1. There are three issues that make our judging of others on spiritual matters inexcusable. The first one is our judging usually is unwarranted. It's unwarranted. Here's the reason why. Paul says you should not judge others. Number one, why? Because you're a sinner too. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I learn this with my boys all the time. 
my boys will be fighting and they'll be wrestling with one another and I'll tell them to stop and they keep doing it and I tell them to stop. And then what will happen is one will stop and the other one won't. And the other one will say, well, I didn't stop because he didn't stop or I didn't do it or I did it because of this or that. And the problem is you're both guilty. And whether or not you can explain why you're guilty or not or the reason why you've done what you've done, it doesn't matter. You're both guilty. Both of you broke the law of not listening to dad. We have to understand, before we start judging people for their sin, we need to understand we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. We all struggle with all types of sins. And we have to understand this. We get upset with our Catholic friends who say that there are different sins, venial sins and mortal sins. And we as Protestants say, no, sin is missing the mark. It's all the same. But when we come to Romans 1, we shake our finger and say, oh, you've sinned one of those Roman 1 sins. Oh, that's worse than my sin. It's unwarranted. It's unwarranted. Now think about this. It's unwarranted because what we begin to do is begin to invade another person's uh, life. We haven't done it asking them permission. We haven't done it to seek the counsel of God, whether we should stick our nose in that person's situation. How would you like it if the government all of a sudden uh, took a ram and rammed down your door and said, we're coming in, you would ask the question, where is the warrant for this search? And yet we do that in people's lives all the time. We look at their sin, we pass judgment on them without any warrant at all, even though we ourselves are criminals, we ourselves are sinners. Next we see it's unfair. Write that down. It's unfair. What usually happens when we pass judgment on others is we forget our own sins. We forget our own sins. We remember others Our memories are are fuzzy on what we've done, but it's crystal clear on what others have done. As one who preaches in the same church that I grew up, there was a period of time where people would bring to my recollection, especially as, as a teenager trying to move out of some of the sins of my youth, trying to move beyond the mischievous uh, nature of who I was, trying to correct some of the wrongs in my life. There, there were people uh, that would come up and they would bring to recollection with kind of a smile on their face, I remember when you did this. Who do you think you are to speak on this subject? Because I remember when you did that. There was an individual in our church who doesn't attend, they don't attend here anymore, but there was, at one point, I just got so tired of hearing that because every time I felt like, like I was just starting to get out from under that, that memory that people had of me and some of the wrong things I did, uh, that person would come up and say, you know, I remember when you did this. You need to keep your mouth shut. You need to stay quiet. You've got too many issues in your past. And I said, it must be nice to know my failures and to hide behind yours. You know, as parents, as older people, we can do this with our young, our young children and our teenage children very easily. We can start saying, do as I say, not as I did. We can be able to say that, uh, you know what, you shouldn't be acting like this, and you shouldn't be doing this, that, or the other thing. And we ourselves fell to that, and we forgot about the temptation, the struggle, and the pain that it was to be growing up in a sinful and depraved world. But we sit back now that we've got everything figured out, now that we've moved from Romans 1 to Romans 2, and we shake our finger at our children and we say, why are you falling to this? 
Why are you doing this? You sinner, you, you kid, you're never going to figure it out. It's unfair. I wrote this down. When we pass judgment on others, we go public about others' sins while we stay private about ours. You want your sins to be cast out amongst the public? You want your sins to be announced across a megaphone? Other people don't either. And yet that's what you're doing. Finally, it's unbalanced. It's unbalanced. How is it unbalanced? We make it unbalanced when we start to rename sins. When we start to rename what we do. In Romans 1, we see adultery. Very, very bad. We've got to stop that. Fornication. Bad. Sexual sin. Very bad. Got to deal with that. But when someone, uh, when someone thinks about their own sin, they say, oh, I'm just checking out the scenery. I'm just having some thoughts in my mind. It's not adultery. It's not fornication. I'm not engaging in anything with anybody else. It's just some playful thoughts. It's a little fantasy. Well, we do it in other ways. We say, hey, that guy's got an anger issue. He sins. And then your children do some things in your life, and what do you say? Just blowing off some steam. I don't got an anger issue. I'm not sinning in my anger. I'm just blowing off some steam. I'm just telling them like it is. How many times have you done that? You're renaming your sin. I don't shoplift. I've never grabbed something off the shelf and put it in my pocket. But let me ask you the question. Have you ever found out that the, the cash, uh, cashier, uh, the cashier has forgotten to ring up one of your items? Well, their mistake. They make millions of dollars. This is my lucky day. And you head out to your car. We rename things. We reclassify things. And it becomes unbalanced. I don't rebel like kids today, but yet you speak harshly about every person that is in authority over you, whether your boss, whether your parents, whether people like police officers, like Keith. Um, and um, no, Keith didn't say anything bad about a police officer. I don't lie. I'm not dishonest. I just stretch the truth. We rename things. Now, does this mean we can never judge? If our judging is usually unwarranted, unfair, and unbalanced, the answer is no. There is a place to judge. There is a time to judge. Matthew chapter 7, turn there for a moment, go to your left. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Jesus gives us an understanding in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. You're going to see some, some words of, of uh, um, uh, commands that are given. But in the commands, don't think that what Jesus is saying is you can't. But what he's doing is he's tempering uh, our response. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let me stop there for a minute. Would you be able to live under your own judgment of others? Would you be able to stand in court the same way that you prosecute against evil and sin? Would you be able to sit there and be able to take that and be able to pass the approval of a jury? That's what's been measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's the key part of the verse. You're going to get involved in judging others? Understand this. You better get what's out of your eye. You better get out, get out what is in your life before you start dealing with someone else's. And I'll tell you, you live out verse 7 of uh, Matthew 7. I'm sorry, verse 5 of Matthew 7, you will begin to understand a couple things. F.B. Meyer says this about when we judge. He says, when you come to a person who has fallen into sin and you are ready to speak judgment upon them, remember these three things, he says. Number one, you don't know how hard they tried not to fall to that sin. You have no idea how hard it was for that person to stay out of that sin. Only the person in God knows. Doesn't make it right. But we need to understand that. Number two, we don't know the forces of evil fighting against them, tempting them to fall to that sin. You don't know what kind of temptation that individual is under. Again, it doesn't resolve the issue that they fall into sin, but it should temper our judgment against them. And number three, you need to ask the question, what would you have done in the same circumstances? What's the old adage? You don't know what a person, how a person lives until you've walked a, a mile in their moccasins or in their shoes. Understand the question. If I was put in that place, what would I have done? If I was put in that situation, what would my reaction have been? Don't delight in judging others. It's inexcusable. Number two, don't dismiss. Don't dismiss the inescapable judgment of God. Look at verses 2 and 3. He goes on and he says, Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? He says, don't dismiss things. When we judge others, we dismiss God. We take God out of the equation. We begin to say that, hey... I need to judge them because if I don't do it, someone else, uh, no one else will. I have an older son, and you know what, I, I'm going to say this just, uh, I love my boys. My boys are great. I know I use a lot of times, uh, you know, funny stories about them. I use them because kids are wonderful examples, um, and, uh, and they teach me theology through and through in my relationship with God. And so please understand that uh, when I share these things, I love my boys. I think they're great, okay? But we're using them as examples, and I will tell you, as they grow older, these examples will become less and less, all right? So don't hold it against my sons. They're only as good as their father, and uh, that's a handicap for them. So my boys, my six-year-old is right now, he, he's Jekyll and Hyde. He is the greatest older brother to Luke, our youngest, he takes care of him. He feeds him the bottle. He wants to hold him. He wants to make sure that he sleeps and takes his nap. It's great. Doesn't want anything to harm him. But the three-year-old, Joshua, Noah goes from nurturer to disciplinarian. He will say to my son, you stop doing that. I am your brother and you need to listen to me. And I say, Noah, you're not a daddy. But who's going to take care of Joshua when he does these things? Who's going to tell him right and wrong? Well, Daddy will. Mommy will. But you know what? We're like Noah. When we find ourselves 
judging others. Because we're like that little kid that points our finger at the other one and says, I'm your boss. I'm going to tell you what you've done right and what you've done wrong. I'm going to tell you if you passed the test or not. And what you've done, just as my son did, is said, there's no mommy and daddy. Who's going to discipline you? Who's going to pass judgment on you? If I don't do it, who's going to? And what we begin to do as believers is forget that God is the judge. We are not. We're limited and flawed in our judgment. But notice what he says. First of all, God's judgment, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's not unwarranted. It's not unfair. It's not unbalanced. It's perfect. The scripture makes it according, uh, clear. He says, according to truth or based on truth, he will judge. That sounds pretty good. We're flawed. He's righteous. The scripture is full of passages that speak about this. Write this passage down. 1 Peter 2.23. Peter says that God judges justly. 1 Peter 1.17. That God is impartial in all his judgments. Psalm 96.3 reminds us of what Paul has just said. That God judges in truth. In Psalm 75.2. He says that God judges uprightly. We need to understand that God's justice, his perfection in righteousness in how he judges the world is an attribute of his. This makes him who he is. He is God because he judges rightly. We are not because we cannot judge rightly. Next, we see he's not punitive in nature. God's judgment is not punitive in nature. Look at verse 3. He goes on and he says, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them. Now let's stop there. This idea, so when you, a mere man, it's trying to say, you're very, very small. There's not much to you. Why would you think you can pass judgment on another? The whole thing is, is why do we pass judgment? Why would a mere man, why would a six-year-old think that they can pass judgment on a three-year-old? And tell them what to do and what is right and what is wrong. What makes that individual think that they can do it? It's an elevated view of one and it's the destruction of another. When we pass judgment in a sinful way without understanding the grace and mercy of God, we begin to look down our nose at people and we begin to knock them down and destroy them. And we say, I'm better. I know more. I found more victory than you have. I'm more holy than you are. Now I'm going to pass judgment on you. You're wrong in this area. You're wrong in that area. You fall into this sin, that sin, and the other sin. And it's wrong. We do it because we want to destroy. Why do we want to destroy? You say, I don't want to destroy anybody. And I'm not judging. I'm just just speaking my heart, laying it out there on the line, speaking truth. And I would say, you're doing it so you feel better. I liked looking at that couple, that family from uh, the UK, because it made me feel better as a parent. Well, I don't have a kid that smokes. My kid's only six, the oldest one. I don't think that's an issue right now, okay? Well, my kids don't use bad language. Well, my kids don't do this. Just put some medals on me. I'm the father of the year. I don't, I'm not that way. And so I destroy the life of one, so I feel better about myself. That's not how God does it. The Bible says in Psalm 94.2 that God only gives what they deserve. Psalm 96.10 says that God judges with equity. 
It is in response to missing the mark. God doesn't do it. Please hear me. God does not bring wrath and judgment upon his people so that he gets some great pleasure out of it. God isn't sitting there and saying, wow, I just love beating these people called human beings. I love it. I get some strange uh, satisfaction out of it. The Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't delight in that. He doesn't find some joy or some great sensation. He is grieved at the loss of life and the loss of one to hell. And the Bible says that that's why he waits, so that all will come to repentance. It's not punitive. It is just. It is exactly what we deserve. One preacher once said that when people come to heaven who have not trusted Christ as their Savior, they will plead that God will send them to hell because they will know that they missed it, that they blew it, and that they deserve nothing more than hell and all that it affords. I don't know if that's true or not, but I can see the logic in it. Because we will see God in all His glory, in all His justice. And if we don't know Christ, we will be floored by the weight of our sin and the holiness of God that I, I think he's probably right. We, as, uh, that unbelievers will plead to exit the existence away from God. To get away from it. To be able to take on the judgment that is due them. Finally, we see that God's judgment is promised. It's promised. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? And what he's saying is, is you think that after all is said and done, you live your nice, cleaned up suburban life and you look at the people that are really falling to all kinds of terrible sins, that you're not going to fall to those things? He says, wait a minute. There's a judgment coming. It's promised. Romans 14, 10, 2 Timothy 4, 1, Hebrews 10, 30, 1 Peter 4, 5. What do we know about all these things? That God is going to judge. There's a time in the future. God has set the time and the date, and there will be a judgment. Now, for who? 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11 says, we who are in Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be judged for what we did for Christ while in our bodies. Did we live for Christ? Did we pursue Christ? Did we do all that we could for Christ? will be judged according to that. And some will, will be given great rewards and others will go through barely making it by, only being left with the salvation that was given to them. They did nothing beyond what Christ had done for them. There will be a judgment for us as believers. Revelation 20.12 says that great and small, those who are dead, never trusting Christ, will stand before the great white throne judgment. Now that won't be what they've... Uh, um, been about what they did for Christ, but the Bible says it'll be done, it'll be done according to what they did while living, and it'll be based on their rebellion and turning away from God instead of turning to Christ. There's a judgment coming. It's promised. When we judge, we begin to say, you know what? Maybe God was wrong on this thing. Maybe he's going, uh, not going, going to judge, so I need to do it. And we think that we'll escape this judgment. Understand, just because you're a child of God does not mean there isn't a judgment coming. Paul talks about that to the people in, uh, in the church of Corinth. We're going to be judged as well. Finally, we see, don't despise the incredible journey back to God. 
The first two of these cut deep in our life. We shouldn't uh, delight, we shouldn't dismiss the judgment of God and delight in our judging of others. But notice what he says in verse 4. He says the following, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? What is the incredible journey? The incredible journey is the journey of repentance. The incredible journey is the journey to salvation. And it says that when we judge, when we pass judgment on others, we show contempt. The King James Version uses the word you despise. You despise. It means to underestimate, grossly underestimate the significance, to look down upon something with scorn. What are we looking down in scorn at? The incredible journey. The road to repentance. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7 says the following. Let me just read that for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 7 says this. All of us lived among, among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy... It's made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now listen to what happens. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. To do what? In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace. Expressed how? In the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We need to understand something. That when we pass judgment, we say, God, your judging isn't going to happen. It hasn't happened quickly enough. I need to get in there and judge that individual. Their sin needs to be dealt with, and I'm going to take care of it. And God says, wait a minute. Let me show kindness first. Notice what this word kindness is. It is God's dedication to humanity. His kindness. Even as unbeliever, the unbelieving world, God shows kindness. God does all of this. How? Instead of judging us the moment that we sin, the wage of sin is death. Have you sinned this morning? Did you sin this last week? Is your heart still beating? Then God has said, in my kindness, I will not destroy you the day that you sin. I won't allow those consequences to come. And so what does he do? Does he just say, I'm just going to hold back this? No. The Bible makes it clear that God preserves us as creation. God provides for us in creation. God protects his creation. And he doesn't just do this for believers. He does it for all. The Bible says that he allows rain to fall on the good and the bad. He brings production to those who are good and bad. He allows happiness for those who are good and bad. It's not just for us as believers. But we need to understand something. Not only is it a dedication to, God, to humanity that God has, his kindness, but it's also seen in his, in his tolerance. The second word that we see is tolerance. This word was used to speak of a truce between two warring nations. And what does it mean? God does not allow us to pay the full brunt of our sin, but what he does is he creates guidelines by which this war will take place. And so what did he do? God says, okay, I'm going to delay my wrath. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to delay my wrath. And what does that mean? That means that I'm going to create a law. The law is of sowing and reaping. 
You, you do certain things, there's going to be consequences. You fall to sin, there's going to be consequences. If you start living a, a life filled with adultery, it's going to impact your marriage. You're going to speak in ways that are hurtful to your kids, it's going to impact your family. You're going to spend money because you want to just gorge yourself with all kinds of pleasures in this world, then you're going to find yourself in times of great need. There's uh, sowing and reaping that takes place. But notice why the, the wrath is delayed. Second Peter chapter 3 speaks about this. Turn for a moment to the end of the Bible. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says this. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9. This is what it says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise of coming back, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now go down to verse 15. Now bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. When you cast judgment on another, you are bringing forth the wrath that only God can bring. And you say, well, God's not doing it. Someone needs to speak up against this terrible sin. Let me tell you something. Aren't you glad that God tolerated your sin for a while to allow you to come to salvation? Aren't you glad that God was patient and was kind enough to you to allow you to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before he uh, said, you know what, I'm just going to destroy all of them? God was mad that he, he was angered that he had uh, uh, grieved that he had created man, it says. That every inclination of man in Genesis 6 was on evil. And God still gave 120 years for a man named Noah to build an ark so that others would turn back to God. And even though they didn't, he gave them time. God gave Abram and his cousin Lot time to... Uh, tried to find those who might come out of Sodom and all the sin that was involved before he destroyed it. Think of the story of Jonah. Jonah wants to, to destroy Nineveh and all the sin and immorality that was going on in Nineveh. And the Bible says that God was slow. He was slow because he abounded in mercy. Aren't you glad that God abounds in mercy and not judgment? And if our God does that, shouldn't we as believers abound in mercy and delay some of our judgments and wrath? Well, it involves one final thing, and that's a duration of time. The word patience means to have a slow fuse, to not overflow with anger quickly. But I will tell you something. There's a day coming, my friends, when God will come back, when Christ with all the angels will come back, and He will judge the nations. And He will judge every man, woman, and child based on those two judgments, the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ, and He will judge. And just because you sit there and say, hey, things are going well, and, and I don't need to worry about this right now, and it's not a big deal, understand that there's a day coming that God's kindness and love and graciousness to you is to give you every opportunity to come to repentance. But there's a day coming, and it will be too late for you to make that decision on that day. Understand that when my children uh, get me angry, I give them warnings. And I say, stop doing that. 
And they keep doing it. And I say, stop doing that. And they keep doing it. And at a moment that they don't know, they flick a switch in their father that wrath is coming, that judgment is coming. My friends, a day that is unknown to all of us, there's a day coming where God will judge. The Bible says the living and the dead. So what's our application? What do we get from these first four verses? Number one, worry about yourself. We talk or tell our children that all the time. Worry about yourself before you judge others. Number two, change your pronouns. If you look at Romans 1, it's all about them and those and uh, they. In Romans 2, it's all about you, a mere man, a mere woman. It isn't us and them, but we're all sinners. We're all in one group in need of grace and mercy. Give God his job back. God's the judge. Give it to him first. If he lays it on your heart that you need to speak a word of exhortation or a word of correction, then do it graciously. Do it knowing that you are a sinner who will be judged according to how you judge. Be fair. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, repent and turn to God before it's too late. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I thank you for these first four verses of Romans chapter 2. They hit us right between the eyes as, as believers. Lord, we are mere mortal men and, and women. We're flawed, we're failed uh, in, in our lives. And Lord, we pass judgment on one or an, uh, one another. And we do it, Lord, because we want to feel better about ourselves. We do it, Lord, because we think we're better than others. But Lord, let this church and let every person in this place remember that we all deserve your wrath. We all deserve your judgment. But God, because of your glorious riches of mercy, uh, you've saved us and you've pulled us out of that. So Lord, remind us of that. Before we cast judgment on our children, on our spouses, before we cast judgment on the unbeliever in the workplace or in the community around us, that we would have grace and mercy flowing from us. And even in that moment that you call us to bring judgment to uh, a certain situation in life, that we would check to make sure our life is in order, that we would re recognize the struggle that that individual and the grief that they may be facing, that we would look at it as you did. As you viewed that woman that was caught in adultery in the book of John, you said, you who has no sin, cast the first stone. And then you lifted that woman off from the ground and you said, where are your accusers? Lord, let us have that mindset that we would not be stone throwers, but that we would be those that would pull one from the ground out of the miry pit of sin and restore them to you. That's our desire, Lord. We are ambassadors of reconciliation and that is our desire. So let us pass judgment in that way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.